welcome, listener, to another episode of Lost and Rewound. My name is Alon. And my name is Jimmy. And if you don't know now, it's time to get very embarrassed with us. My name is Alon, that's Jimmy, we're Lost and Rewound, and this is brought to you every week by Radio Free Brooklyn. If you haven't done so already, a reminder to check out Radio Free Brooklyn's pledge page at RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash pledge, and if you feel so inclined to give us a big up directly, RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash LAR to sponsor our show. Yes. With real American pesos. Real American pesos. We can use them to further our cause of radio excellence throughout the airwaves. Indeed. And uh, if you missed the fundraiser this past weekend over in Bushwick, you missed a good party. But I'm sure they'll have another one soon enough. Because, hey, you know, we're all about putting the fun in fundraising, (laughs) right? Isn't that how the old adage goes? I put this sir in fundraiser. All right, we, we don't have time to dilly-dally anymore, so we have to get this show rolling. My high school, we've talked enough about it. This is a really special one. we got a few guests, including an interview, coming right up. Brought to you by these messages. Don Freed is a writer and recently retired teacher who for 28 years taught English at the school I attended for six years, Poughkeepsie Day School. Although I never had Don as a teacher for English throughout my high school years, Don's involvement overseeing PDS's annual original musical was where I got to know him best. Don was the heart and soul of the original musical writing and directing process, which in my experience spanned an entire school year with the writing in the fall and the performance in the spring. I recently had the opportunity to get Don on the phone for an interview, as I hoped to get some insight from the true expert on this subject. When I got there, I was replacing somebody who was going to be involved in theater, I directed a few things, and I wanted to do stuff with musicals because I liked them very much, and, and uh, Alison Withers, who's my buddy there, had similarly grown up on them. So we did three shows in three years, uh, which were kind of cl- were classic shows by different Broadway writers, songwriters. First was Anything Goes, which was called Porter, and then we did Babes in Arms, which was Rogers and Hart, and then we did Of the I Sing, which was the Gershwins. And... Um, the parts didn't really distribute well. You know, there were a few major roles, and then there was a chorus, and it just didn't feel right. And so I had written plays before, written musicals, in fact, and and so um, 
just felt like a, a good idea to write a show which would accommodate the people who wanted to be in it. And that's where that started. And with the first one we did was called The Cheese Stands Alone. And all we began with was the title, which I loved from, you know, the uh, kind of the nursery rhyme. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so we had that. And then, and for the first few, there was a uh, sort of cheese was in the title of, of some of the others, anyway. Now, so that was, yeah. That was maybe. What? Was, I think 82. That was 82. 82, the spring of 82 was the first one. Everybody was contributing, and some songs began with, um, uh, some songs began with, with a lyric, and some songs began with, with the music, and sometimes somebody was working on both simultaneously, or a couple of people were. My main responsibility was to edit and combine and to, you know, supply transitions and so forth. And, uh, when, you know, in order to put the script together. But when we were working um, during the CSs, you know, there were kind of free-for-alls where people, we just talked about different ideas and different things, and you hoped that at the end of every session, you were a little bit closer to having something coherent and, uh, and viable. You would uh, have this central study in the fall, and you would get... Well, that, that, that actually was different... We, we, we settled into that pattern after some years. Initially, I think we did it all together. We did the writing and the performing all together. Or we did... Um, oh, wow. That, that's or, intense. Or in September or in the fall, we would get... We would talk to the high school. And, and at that point, we had kids in them from grade 7 through 12. School was smaller anyway. Sure. But, and so we would find out how many people wanted to be in it. And then we would write show to order mm -hmm. but it, it did evolve into a situation where the show was written in the fall and performed in the spring what was the experience that you remember from the year 1998 with american music it was a very different show from others because as you remember there's this kind of framing device that this was, uh, I think it was Brandon who played the role. Uh, uh, or was ben Rathbone uh, played the central character. So what was, what was Brandon in that? I think I, he... I have, this, I have the script upstairs. And, <laughs> and, uh, no. So I could look it up. Oh, you know, Brandon, was... Brandon may have played the older version of Ben Rathbone. Oh, yes, 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 yes. That's what it was. This was somebody who was... Did he run a club or something? He ran a like bar, that? like an Irish um, bar. Yeah, and he was he was reminiscing about the different phases of music and performance over his career. Yes. I don't know if it had any kind of plot beyond that, any kind of story with it. <laughs> that was that was the general framework. You were able to use the ethos of keeping all the kids more or less equally involved. By right. uh, by interpolating them into different eras, of which mm -hmm. this club was central to. And it was Elena, Elena Smith, who had the idea of having that group, uh, that girl group, which comprised Elena, and she had a character that she called Rachel Violence. <laughs> and then the other two, Jill Miller, Jillian Miller, mm -hmm. was Spud, and that was great because you know her mother was Scottish and. I don't know, Spud sounded like such a Scottish thing. And Dinah played Tater Tots. And they were kind of part of the framing yeah. of the show. But the other things were just acts of people who were, you know, somebody who was a, did 50s stuff or 40s exactly. stuff. Exactly. How was the musicianship 
How did that evolve over time? I worked with whoever was the uh, music teacher at the school. Who was the music person on that? Was it Keith Cotton or was it Kenny? If I, I thought it might have been Ken, but I don't remember. Yeah, I, think, I think that's what it was. So kids would be assigned or, you know, you'd say, who, who wants to write this kind of a thing? And, yeah. And there were different people who were musically inclined who would do that often, who played instruments. And, you know, it just kind of evolved. And then whoever was the music teacher would work with the composers in the same way that I worked with the people who were writing text and, and lyrics, you know, to just refine things, edit things. How often do these kids write these songs that you either have to say no way to, you have to do full rewrites of? When people wrote things, we tried to use at least some of it. Sometimes a couple of people who were working on lyrics and they could be combined somehow, or I don't remember what was going on with that. Uh, Dinah and Kate might know more. But it was a two-step thing. So the person writing the lyric had a structure, a, a tune to write to, and then... The composer would take the lyric and write something else that matched that lyric. So it was certainly a collaborative effort where one person wasn't necessarily writing an entire song on their own. Oh, um, that's definitely true. Yeah. How does the original music process go into the aughts and into the, I guess, effectively this past decade? Well, uh, the last one we did was in 2009, 8 or 9, I forget. And, um, and then another teacher, Laura Hicks, came on to really run a theater program. And she was an actor, and she really wanted to teach acting. And, you know, we weren't doing that at all. And, and the other thing was that um, starting with um, guest appearances, you remember Mark Burns, who started to work at the school then. Yes. And, you know, he joined that team, and we worked really beautifully together uh, on, on these projects with kids. And so... After the year, after the last show, which was a Romeo and Juliet-based show called um, Such Sweet Sorrow, he decided to stop teaching. And, you know, and Laura had her ideas about, Laura worked on that show with us, Laura, the new teacher. Mm -hmm. But then she had her ideas about what she wanted to do with the program, and Mark wasn't teaching anymore. And I, had, I just wasn't ready to start with somebody else. And, um, you know, we'd had a good run. I don't know, there were, it was over 20 years or whatever, so. Sure. I, I wasn't aware that it wasn't going on anymore, but uh, that it was a, a long duration of time that such a program existed to right. allow for creative output, for a collaboration, um, mm -hmm. and allow kids to be a part of something and make something and see it actually performed. That's such a, a PDS thing to be able to create something out of nothing. Right. Yeah, no, that was the pleasure of it, and, you know, from having been in theater. And when you're doing something like that, um, you feel that it's the most important thing in the world. And that's one of the things that makes theater so exciting for, for kids to do in school because it gives them so much sense of being part of a community where everybody's depending on everybody else um, in the way a sports team does. I was sorry to stop, but it was, it was a good time to kind of change you know, to pass that responsibility on. And Laura did a couple of musicals. She did Cabaret, and she did Guys and Dolls, and those were very nicely produced. Those were very satisfying for the kids who were in them. And I loved those shows, so it was a pleasure to see them. When 
I was in ninth grade, Dinah Freed was a junior at Poughkeepsie Day School. 18 years later, she's made quite a name for herself as a graphic designer and an author. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, and on NPR's All Things Considered. In 2014, she even wrote a book called Fictitious Dishes, an album of literature's most memorable meals. Currently, she holds teaching positions at RISD and SVA. Welcome, Dinah. Hi, it's great to be here. And a year above me in high school, Caitlin Chazen is now an adjunct faculty member and professor of geology at both Northern Virginia Community College and George Washington University. She has been awarded two National Science Foundation fellowships, allowing her to develop and teach science programs at local underserved public schools while pursuing her graduate research. She now lives in Washington, D.C., where she continues to develop exciting and innovative curriculums designed to motivate and empower students. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have the both of you. This is, I think, our first double interview ever for, uh, or at least for this iteration of Lost and Rewound. Hopefully not the last. (laughs) (laughs) We're here for a very specific reason. We're here to talk uh, about the original musical of 1998 called American Music. That was my first foray into the original musical realm, but it was not the first for either of you. Tell me, what was your experience like? Well, for me, I mean, it really started as watching because my father was sort of the brains behind all this. So I started watching these when I was probably three years old. And I think Caitlin probably watched them from a very young age also because our siblings were in them. So it's really started as a watching and listening experience for me. And then I think I was in my first show when I was in seventh grade and then wrote it in ninth grade, maybe. And I don't know, it was thinking back on it. I think it's maybe the best thing about high school ever. It was a collaborative and wonderful experience. Caitlin? Yeah, I, you know, don't often associate myself as being involved with drama or even creative writing. But certainly when I was in high school, it was one of the best parts of being in high school. It was one of the main focuses of every year. And gosh, I loved it. I loved it. Also a weird extension of like what we did when we just hung out with each other, which was yeah. like make stuff up and, and create characters. And I don't know, just be kind of certainly a lot of our like private jokes became very public when they were turned into parts of characters and dialogue it was yeah songs it all it all kind of melded together back and forth Diana and I were best friends she was uh not only a good friend but somebody that I really looked up to uh, particularly when it came to sort of creative developments like the, these plays um, I spent a ton of time at her house it was my refuge my place of peace and organization um i kind of fancied myself a little bit of a punk and yeah beyond that i don't know what would you add dinah we were very very close friends and and oldest friends because we've really known each other our whole lives yeah i was gonna say you guys were lifers as they tend to call it right with (laughs) the poughkeepsie day school or any private school i suppose for that matter that um begins at pre-k and goes until senior year of high school Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think sort of relevant to these shows, and I said this before, is that it wasn't just us, like all of our siblings and Caitlin has five siblings were like pretty much lifers at, at PDS. So, and in the shows as well. So we had an unusual experience that I don't think I could really explain on this podcast, but the school was very small and very familial and, um, and just offbeat and collaborative and creative and, and totally strange. So we were just, you know, we were, regular high school students except experiencing something that maybe other people didn't get to experience because it was in this unusual environment that was that was great and sometimes not great but yeah this particular process of doing the shows was really fun 
Yeah, that's what I was wondering about because I'm 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 not in the dark. I don't really I don't really understand like the, this creative process and these plays. We didn't have anything like that. We had to license crappy plays. <laughs> <laughs> well, not all of them are crappy. You were in a few good ones. I was in uh, Summer Night's just Dream. two plays. Yeah, just just just, just was, the two. One was really good and one was really awful. When you are going to a school with a theater program that is implementing writing into the whole program, you are probably going to end up having the opportunity to save money and you know create your own work. And that, I think, speaks to not just the school, but just, I think, uh, a progressive environment that allows for something a little different. I don't know. I mean, you, Jimmy went to a public school. I, we went to private school, but I don't think it's a public versus private thing. I think it's just uh, a size. I think it's a vision. Really, for the sure, school. and I think that these, in a way, these plays were mirroring the ethos of the school in that there wasn't a very steep hierarchy there, and within the shows there wasn't either. Yeah, some people had more songs, or, or their parts were kind of more integral to the main plot. And the whole idea behind writing these shows was that everybody could have a line or a little storyline that they got to do. And, and definitely people sang, I, mean, I would say both of us included, who were not typically good singers. And, and you know, it wasn't oh, like yes. the typical musical <laughs> when there are two or four or six leads and then everyone else is, is really um, without a, a name or a, an important role. So, so in that way, it represented the school, which was all about sort of everyone getting a chance no one no one being well I mean, there wasn't no hierarchy because that always forms but but certainly it was a very inclusive environment and i think that the plays were reflective of that i was actually going to liken that when i basically just to explain the fact that i said i was in one play that was good and one play that was bad it's basically exactly this process that you're talking about was that we had one director who was a fantastic director that let us in on the creative process and was constantly looking for input on how he could improve the plays and he was asking our advice and you know we would be coming up with ideas for scenes and things like that that were you know we did Shakespeare and you know our school was in the hood so he had kids rapping in it and they were Puck's crew in Midsummer Night's Dream then we had another director who wanted to do things exactly by the book and we did fame I don't know why she chose fame Uh, I was the only character that didn't have to dance so that was like really great but it was like an oligarchy it suffered and everyone everyone said what happened what happened you know that's what happens when you have good creative people that, that support their students and people that don't as uh, your father was saying in the interview before, no different than a, a sports team. There's definitely a teamwork aesthetic that needs to come into play here. I assume you guys had a pretty good marking on the songs that were written for American music. How did you guys uh, collaborate? And did you actually, the two of you, collaborate on one song? I'm sure we did collaborate. I can't remember which song specifically, though. Sure. In this particular play, Caitlin, can you? Yeah, I can't actually remember what we specifically did, but often we'd start things just sort of sitting around a room with a lot of people um, and throwing things out. And sometimes that two people would feel sort of more focused on a particular theme and they would would take that on and, you know, write the whole verse on their own and maybe bring it back or maybe finish it all. Mm-hmm. You know, every time it was it was pretty different in terms of how each song was actually developed. Right, and sometimes it would be something that just came out of, I mean, it was no joke before, like something we, some stupid song we had made up one random night, you know, when we were hanging out that would somehow find its way and we would make a way for it to, to um, actually become something real. And, and, and sometimes it would, you know, we'd be clearly writing a scene and 
there needed to be a song somewhere. And, and like Dylan said, some people would, you know, it might start off big, but usually it would become two or three people. And sometimes there'd be a musician. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of write and the music and the lyrics at the same time. And I didn't write music, but I would, sometimes I would just write lyrics. And sometimes we based things on other songs and then we would change the tunes afterwards. And, yeah. and that was all, um, yeah, it was like play. It was really, it was fun. And because we were doing it with people that we liked spending time with, it was joyful. And we got to do it all day long because this course ran all day on Wednesdays, I think. Yeah, that's what we were talking yeah, about. It was, it was uh, an all-Wednesday activity. Let's dive into it. And uh, we have the first song here. This is called Hey Lazy Boy. Nineteen ninety eight in a nutshell definitely uh, sounded very much at home with a lot of the stuff you were hearing on the radio at that time with uh, alternative rock and everything. Dinah, did you have a place in writing that song? You were singing that with uh, two of the seniors, uh, Jillian Miller and Elena Smith. Sure, I think I wrote that song probably with Elena, but maybe others too. And the whole conception of of the band that we were in, which I said before is called the Dirty Potatoes. Uh, Elena was the lead singer. Her name was Rachel Violence. And then 
I was called Tater Tots and Jillian was called Spud. <laughs> nice, nice. With a Scottish accent like her mother. I, I believe it was, if not the first, then one of the first songs in the show. And just to give a very brief summary of, of sort of how the, the I remember the musical being structured was that we were in this band, we were playing at a club. Initially, the songs we were singing, this one, Lazy Boy, was sort of vapid and um, sounded like everything else on the radio. And then we started talking to the club owner, learning about the history of the club and in turn, the history of American music. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the end, we wrote and sang a song that had much more impact and soul. This was sort of the song without soul, and it was meant to be a little catchy, maybe, but also vapid, I think was the word. Nothing special. Right. Yeah, well, that that was a lot of music, I think, in the late 90s, because it was uh, on the tail end of uh, what was this trend of alternative rock. I read a really great article about it recently, how by like the late 90s, it was flying into a fiery crash and nothing really made sense anymore about what alternative rock was and just sort of blended all together. That was pretty high concept for high school students. In Brooklyn, I feel, at least where I was, people didn't listen to rock. People were going from, like, Wu-Tang to really awful rap in the late 90s, and they loved it. (laughs) It was like, it was the opposite. People were just, they were caught on a terrible track. You were listening to punk rock, though, right? I used to listen to metal and hardcore music and stuff like that yeah okay, so but, i was yeah. i was trying to go against the grain <laughs> but i was it was i was in it for the ridiculous shows you were listening to punk rock right caitlin you, I, you said I you were a punk to a lot of uh, a lot of alterno music i think i was really influenced by my brother i was also listening to a lot of wu-tang influenced mm-hmm. by my brother yeah um, we listened to a lot of weezer then too we did and i i would say that my recollection was that lazy boy was sort of almost influenced by the beastie boys song girls a little bit oh in its um, in its uh attitude that's fair. yeah that could be i don't i yeah. don't Remember that we also listened to a lot of Beastie Boys. We were listening to lots of things. I would say metal would be an exception. We were not listening to metal then. But yes, that was the one genre we were not listening to for sure. I think we, as as that school, country, right? Yeah. yeah. It was it was it was, it was a, I liked. I liked Merle Dolly. Haggard and yeah, Patsy Cline and all that was. Who good doesn't stuff. like Dolly Parton? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when I used to listen to metal, they the the guys that I used to hang out with used to like think I was weird because I would listen to music that also had clean vocals, which meant that they were distinguishable. Um, <laughs> They're like, oh, you listen to music with clean yeah, vocals. Yeah, we, we had a lot of we definitely had range, but there were some music that we liked really genuinely. Like I, I don't know, I listened to the Pixies very genuinely that point but a lot of music we listened to pop music we liked but we also were critical of or we thought it was stupid but also really enjoyable so i think some of that comes through here where we could acknowledge something was catchy and fun but also didn't have that much artistic merit and i don't think we were thinking of it in those exact words at that point but that's kind of how we functioned in and out of pop culture like that wouldn't you say caitlin yes i think that's a really good point I would say that the catchiness of the next track is very evident. Who wrote this song? Was it? Did you have any part in writing this, Kate? Because you're singing all over this song. Oh gosh, I'm nervous. <laughs> Do you, you don't you don't remember it? You remember it, obviously. I, I actually have a, I have a remarkably poor memory, but it's good because I'm here with Dinah, who can remember what I wore on the first day of school let's, in like ninth grade. Let's so. e, let's e hold each other's heads and, di- <laughs> okay. and dive right in. Boots all polished up to shred hell, I was feeling great. 
Okay, then. Well, that, that happened. That happened, yes. It was you and um, Emil by Lucky. Uh-huh. And who else was on the track there with you? That was some musical mastery for an original I, musical for a I, I don't, Dylan, who else was on it? I don't. I just recognized you and Emil. I don't remember who else. I, I know we could find out. So I am shocked that I forgot that because from the outfit to being on stage to singing that was like the highlight of my high school. (laughs) I have never enjoyed that kind of attention so much in my life. And I can't believe that I forgot it. Um, But yeah, that happened. What what did happen? (laughs) Um, I... I have a feeling, although I'm not sure, Dino will probably know better, but I have a feeling that I probably insisted on singing a song like that (laughs) and wrote one just that I could do that very thing, Um, which in day school musicals, you did sort of have the option to do that. If you put enough effort into something, often it was incorporated without judgment or editing. Yeah, well, edit. I think there was maybe some editing, but yes, you could certainly write a role with yourself in mind yeah uh, and, yes. and people often did that and i don't i mean i'm trying to remember what i don't know the storyline or exactly the way i remember <laughs> it is not much about yeah. the punk band but uh, yeah go ahead yeah no, all i was gonna say is uh the framework of the story that you mentioned before in which brandon bitterman Big up to Brandon Bitterman was the older Seamus McMahon or whatever his <laughs> Irish name was, and he was chatting with you guys. And uh, Ben Rathbone <laughs> plays the younger yes. version of him, and That's Ben right. Rathbone like got a bunch of gray hair and like old person makeup <laughs> for this second scene of which went right to the eighties and then bounced to like the twenties and then to the sixties and back to the forties. It, it didn't go in a specific order. It just sort of bounced around. Yeah. But yeah, they, the eighties was the first scene in the era back in the day that you see. And there's Caitlin decked out in the most fantastic punk outfit with the Mohawk that oh, is of envy. That's right. I'm sure a lot of safety pins too. Yes. <laughs> there's, a lot of safety pins. there's a ton of musical varieties that, 
pepper around this musical. There's like blues, there's a little bit of swing, the disco song that uh, is being featured in this episode, Groovin', which Kirsten Sharo was singing, and that was great. And yes, everybody, got really, that. everybody got really yeah. into that. The, yeah, I mean, I think in that way, the, the structure of this musical worked very well because it just gave us things that we had to write. Like, we needed to write a song that was in keeping with some musical genre from every decade yeah. since the fictional club was open. So it it gave us the opportunity to really look back at music and look for patterns and styles and then write something that sounded like that. And I think from the songs I remember and can hear in my head a little bit, we're pretty successful at finding whatever those things were to make a song sound like it came from the 40s or what does a blues song sound like? Yeah, I was requested to write a beat poem. So uh, I did. And one of them that you're about to hear is not mine. The first one is not mine. I don't know who wrote it, but John Rudikoff is reading it. And <laughs> the second one is read by a guy named Josh Betts without any like uh, hints at sarcasm, read my poem perfectly. These are beat poems. I wrote, a, I wrote my first and last beat poem for this musical in grade. <laughs> you guys have to hear this. This is crazy. Questioning. Why is it that people are starving? Could it be that they have no food? Why is it that people live on the streets? Could it be that they're homeless? Why is it that me, a white man, cannot stand in the park and hold hands with you, a black man? Do we not groove to the same beat of the same drum. Beat the drum. Beat it, Sammy. Why is it that here in America we do not embrace the ideals of communism? Is it because you are capitalists and you love money? Love it like a woman. A woman you want to touch naked. Questioning. Dark Thoughts. Dark Thoughts of a Black Cat Meow. Dirty Blood of a Red Cardinal. Tweet, tweet. Eat that bird, cat. Eat it. Forest Camouflage for a Green Snake. Light Hopes for a White Bird's Egg. Eat that egg, snake. Eat it. Smelly manure from a brown cow, moo moo. Monotonous buzzing from a blue bug. Swat that bug hard, cow. Swat it. Dark thoughts. So you wrote the second poem? I wrote it. Yeah, I wrote I, that, that. That second poem is all me. Uh, I thought the first one was over the top, but the second one was definitely the, the, the better. <laughs> no, they're both, they both have their qualities. Come on, man. Uh, Can't mean, you dig it? Can you dig it? <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, man, there was <laughs> there's something strange. That led you to write a poem about a cow swatting a fly away from a turd pile. That's <laughs> here's here's what's amazing, and maybe you guys can back me up about this. But when you don't really have a musical palette, I wasn't musically inclined at all. I wrote poetry. I 
I was a writer, but I didn't know notes, so I didn't really have melodies that were of any realistic variety in my head. So when your father, Dinah, presented me with this opportunity to write something for the 60s section, I think I wrote something with an actual melody in head, not spoken word. It, it goes through the ringer, and then it becomes something completely different. There, there are different layers to the writing process, and only so much would kind of get finished or, or fully cooked over the course of that actual course where we sort of started writing everything. And then after that, I, I know I would help my dad. And some students would help him sort of just tie everything together. So I can imagine in that editing process when it all has to come together that there were, there were a lot of sort of things that got shifted and changed in that moment. Particularly if the goal was for it to sort of be a beat poem, then music wouldn't have made any sense. Um, and it certainly suited that very well. And, and those particularly were clearly very over the top to sort of mock a little with a little mocking which not all of the music in this was but yeah but and I also think it it highlights what's so great about these musicals is that it, it meets people where they are in the process certainly some people did write things with particular music in mind and some people who are writing both lyrics and music were able to put those together other people just wrote music other people yeah. just wrote lyrics some people had ideas you know we all approached it from really where we were sort of patience and I think appreciation for what we were presenting. There were yeah. uh, plenty of folks who we were going to school with who played music. I know Tay definitely. Tay, exactly. Yes, he was a fantastic piano player. And that's what he does for a living. So, you yes. know, something. I think Ben might have written music as well. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, and then there was also, in both parts of the writing and the performing parts of this process, there was a musical director. And in the case of this show, I think it was probably Ken... Ken yeah, I think it was. Fantastic. There was the people that were actually, you know, in the play, would perform in the play, but then there was a lot of uh, the musical performance that didn't always perform, people like Tay and Sammy. Um, and then there was people that were super skilled in, the, you know, putting together the sets, right? There's a lot sure. of people who did that every year and were, you know, pretty talented and pretty committed to that. So there's all these different layers of the musical. Yes, I actually have a really good memory of James K. Uh, building a set towards uh, the time that we were doing it. And him and his mother are both talented artists from what I remember. And that was the first time I heard the Violent Femmes song American Music being played. So I, I, I won't ever forget that because it was just kind of like during the day and we were like getting ready for it. And that, there's nothing other than that for the anecdote. But I just remember that there were folks of which went to the school who were building the set willingly knowing that they were never ever going to get up on the stage to perform but wanted to be a part of it in some aspect. Yeah, right. Like think, James K. in a really long time. I know, James K. bringing it back. I, <laughs> I, it also just occurred to me that the Valent Films was the first concert I ever went to see. What? Um, isn't that crazy? And my How old sister were you? snuck. I was too young to be seeing a concert. There was very little <laughs> parental supervision. Too, too but my sister yeah. took me to go see it at like someplace random in Poughkeepsie. Um, the Chance? It might have been the chance. Where we also, you know what we also saw there was Third Eye Blind. Yes, oh my was God, that, that was my first concert. Third Eye Blind was your first no. concert too? My first concert was Third Eye Blind, yeah. We got free tickets from WPLJ. Nice. Yeah, Semi Charmed Life was when I was eight. That was like my thing. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. don't that think. That was it. That was, their, that was the main attraction was that song. Yeah, after that was there, we were kind of like. Hey, after that song, yeah, exactly. Like, you don't know like, any oh, of the yeah. other <laughs> <laughs> I realized that quickly going to see them in live concert. <laughs> 
My first concert was technically a show in Woodstock at the now defunct Joyous Lake, but my first real, real, real concert was at Roseland Ballroom, also now defunct. <sighs> they just keep going away. Um, Foo Fighters <laughs> and that dog. Who, uh, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty ill. I really enjoyed that show, especially since the guy who was taking me, my uh, guardian for the, the evening, I guess, was taking me to the VIP section. So I got like a nice front row seat and definitely too young. But you know what's so funny? It's actually, this is kind of crazy that I'm, I'm talking about this because although it doesn't necessarily concern you directly, Kate, uh, your brother used to... Yeah poke fun at me and Amo actually the both of them would constantly make fun of me when I was in eighth grade for wearing a no doubt t-shirt because I went to a no doubt show at Roseland Ballroom as well also you know with my godfather who would take me there to these shows and the no doubt show was wonderful actually the don't speak video was partially filmed at that show but they well, were, uh, I can tell you that Levi had no business doing that because he definitely listened to No Doubt. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Who, who the first time I heard No, no doubt. doubt was when we went to see your sister Cammy in San Diego. Yeah, same. And I, and I remember, I think I had this conversation with you, Dad. I was like, you know, they're good, but her voice, it's just too strange. They'll never make it. <laughs> yep. I should be a scout. Oh, yeah. I remember they were like, No Doubt rules. No Doubt rules, Alon. No Doubt rules. <laughs> I am sorry. They were, uh, yeah. They were great. That's they were. They, 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 they paid sorry. attention to me. That's all I needed. I needed the attention. A little <laughs> punk eighth, eighth grader uh, being paid attention to by the high schoolers. It's it can only happen <laughs> in a small school. I really don't know if I want to play this song, but it's short. So if you entertain me, and then we we do have so we have only a few songs left, but I did want to play this one because it's great and terrible at the same time. You guys, tell me what you think. <laughs> to that though i did not write the music and i was not expecting it to be so dissonant i actually talked about this as well with your father dinah that uh writing a song you have a totally different melody in mind and i had some like very chattanooga choo-choo kind of uh melody in my head when i wrote the song and then of course it becomes this i don't even know what kind of genre it is but it's 
the music almost sounds like um like the sublime riot song well it is i think it is a protest song right yes it is a protest song i was that's what i was supposed to write so i wrote that in mind but with more of like a I don't know, like a more of a positive, like, you know, we'll do it. We'll do it. Da, 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 da. And it says, like, we're fucking pissed off. Yeah. There, I feel like there's always one of those songs that's very hard yeah. to do afterwards. And this, you might have written it. So, uh. <laughs> yeah. But again, like, this was my first go around. This is sort of what blows my mind. So, Diane, do you think that Don wrote that music at the very end to that song? No, no I don't think he. Well, like on his little Casio, because yeah, he he always had that at the very end, like no. like make a bunch of stuff fit. Right. No, I don't think he right. did it. I think one of the musical people did it. But I mean, one of the okay. music teachers probably. But he might have a better memory of that than me. Maybe can. But maybe you know, can yeah there was also margaret who was a teacher who wrote really things that oh, yeah Mano's like mother, kind yeah. of a um really atonal and i mean i actually find them musically interesting but i know that that happened with one of the songs that i wrote and i was like what is this music this is not again the similar feeling this is not what i thought was this was going to sound like just from another show is about morse code this song is a good example of um unrelated to what you just said is that there were always a couple of songs where lots of people would have a little, like a, a couple of lines. Yeah. And it was a way often of bringing smaller characters together, or sort of like one way of doing group numbers um, that gave people a little bit of a moment to sing who maybe weren't that comfortable singing. And I think that those songs had a lot of merit in, in that regard. By this time in 1998, when you got to this moment with this musical, uh, were there any fond memories or interesting anecdotes with, you know, writing songs with others that uh, brought you to, I guess, know how to be a better team member with all the the other new high schoolers that you were dealing with. I can't reference a specific example right now, but I think that um, this sort of continues on to something I was saying a little bit earlier. I think that one of the most valuable things that you can do or learn in terms of interacting with people, working in groups or teaching or being a student is to sort of get that you have to take people uh, where they are, yeah. right? And that people come with a whole list of gifts and uh, limitations. And I think that that was something that was really unique about these plays is that, you know, despite how little uh, musical talent I really had, I never felt like I was um, holding people back. And I think that's because we all were sort of taught to not expect everybody to behave or contribute in a certain way, but to really take people for what they could contribute and then build on to that what we could contribute yeah and sort of continuing in in that way of thinking it was also a process where you realized you would get back as much as you gave so if, if you were really open to the process and just like yeah. threw yourself into it um more opportunity would come out of that i mean people were kind of comfortable contributing in different ways and i was definitely one of the students that would you know work on this way after hours and I was very committed to it and there were students that were in the course and didn't do that but some people wanted to envision the way the entire show would fit together and you know put the puzzle pieces together and other people just wanted someone to say hey work really carefully on this Mm -hmm. scene or this song and do that really successfully so if you were ready for it it was ready to sort of have you in the process that was just really special and unusual and I don't think I realized at the time how unusual it was because it was just what my life was just part of my life for a really long time but Having been a collaborator with many people since then, I realize it's not always that easy. I mean, not that it was easy. Not that you still have to do the work, but the collaboration itself was really organic and um, 
and it kind of taught me what that felt like. It's, I think it's nice to have that support system of being in school and youth behind you where you don't have that worry so much about real life things and you can just focus on the work that you're doing with the people in school mm-hmm. and making sure you get it done. Yeah. And, and a really nice thing that just made me think of about these shows, and this is just one of them, was that if there was something you were interested in the world outside of school, you know, whatever it was, you could really bring that whole aspect of a plot into one of these plays and you wanted to sort of really think about it and write about it. And so there was that opportunity to sort of bring the inside into this very, very bizarre universe of musical writing. So talk about all that then, now knowing how you've had this innovative uh, relationship with the idea of collaborating from now an educator point of view. How has your teaching styles for the both of you been influenced? Uh, I think I definitely can recognize that people are most creative when they're given the most freedom, right? I think that's a really important thing. Um, and to let people perform well, you, you sort of have to have to give them what they need. And that's different for other people, right? You can't expect everybody to perform in the same way. So that certainly changes the way that I, if nothing else, assess my students. Yeah, I mean, Kaylin and I teach very different things, and I think the classrooms, for that reason, probably (laughs) feel quite different. Um, But I know in a, you know, design is a creative practice, and I know I try to create an environment where people feel comfortable trying things and getting them wrong and trying again and talking very honestly about their own work um, and about other people's work. And I think that was part of this process. And that's certainly trickled down from that early collaboration that I did. Um, And also, as I'm planning, I have my first class of the semester tonight, and this entire class is sort of the foundation of it is collaboration. And each project will involve collaboration in a very different way. So I I think I just, I learned how to work with other people Mm -hmm. and loved it and and i think it's integral to good work in general so it's definitely influenced my teaching in that way we have one more song to play and it's called the boys call her music what are your memories of this song well i referenced this at the beginning because this was sort of the um the other bookend to that hey lazy boy song where we spend the entire play uh listening to this this old guy talk about music and teach us about it and then we write a song that has, I mean, I think it just sounds better, but it also, it has all, it's, it's about music and it sort of personifies music in, in a way that's poetic and lovely. And I'm pretty sure that I wrote this song with Elena Smith, who is a writer and you can just hear her voice so strongly in it. So it, uh, yeah, makes me happy. <laughs> Last night at home I couldn't just sit still The air was so electric like the flash Of neon lights outside my windowsill I wanted to explode to make a smash Last night was just the night to get all fancy Red lipstick, yeah, and black boots made to groove in a night just black enough for dancing A bone ice cream Hey girls, I wanna move Her dark eyes were fascinating Her smile was annihilating Her sunburn was intoxicating Felt my stare was penetrating The rhythm was reverberating 
boys all call her music. And she can do anything. And she can do anything. That song is so, super I mean, legit. Maybe it was because it was a little bit louder, or I think it was actually probably just that song. I feel like I've been talking about sort of or alluding to the feelings that we had when these plays were actually being put on. I feel like I was just taken back to such like sort of an emotional and excited and proud place. Like I remember when that song came on every night that we performed it, I loved it. And I think that unlike perhaps most plays, a lot of the goal of these plays were for for us, you know, as much as they were for uh, this audience that was... Oh, I think they considered us way more than they considered the audience. In fact, if we did consider the audience, we might have thought about the length of the plays a little bit more. (laughs) Um, And I don't know, I mean, it was probably a little bit different for Dinah since, you know, your father was involved, but for me, my parents would dread coming to these plays. I mean... (laughs) They really would. And my mom always came for every night, and I can't believe she did it. I mean, that is so lovely, right? Because clearly, these were longer than a play should be. But, you know, we didn't cut anyone. Everyone was in there. I I, got to give my parents props for driving the hour from Woodstock just to see me, you know, be a a crazy Russian in this play. (laughs) For, like, one scene or two scenes. You were saying, Dinah. And I think Caitlin is totally right. That song... You can just hear how none of us are the best singers by any means. In fact, some of us aren't great singers, but just the heart and soul that goes into we were just in it. You can hear how in it we were. And I, I think the dedication to it, the just I don't know. It was it was a special feeling that it's I, I find actually very difficult to put words to, but this yeah. song does kind of capture it. I feel like I don't know how it sounds to an outsider, maybe. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll... We'll find out after this airs. Um, well, uh, that that speaking, uh, I suppose, retroactively seeing is, is that we're pre-recording, but <laughs> it's airing as we speak. Yes, no, this, this, uh, is, this is how media is. <laughs> I didn't tell you guys this. I have a yearbook with me from 1998. It says here from Caitlin, "Dear Alan, it's crazy. The year is over. Oh, Alan, I know I could be short with you, but you're a really great guy. P.S." Keep on dancing. Love, Caitlin. <laughs> wow, that is, yeah, that, I, I, I still feel that way. <laughs> Dinah, you, you were right next to it. Alon, comma, and, and then parentheses, another N, and then you've indicated that there are two Ns. You're probably one of the only people who, at that time, was acknowledging that that was my full name. Uh, you should take on dancing to add to your many performing passions. Have a great summer. <laughs> I'll tell you when you could have a ride. Love, Dinah. I think we got that ride. Yeah, thank you guys so much for coming out on the show. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, it's been great to catch up with you, Alon. I'd like to hear more of what you're doing, and uh, we'll we'll tune in. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it all together. Caitlin Chazen and Dinah Freed on Lost and Rewound. We're going to get out of here and play a little more of this fun stuff to take us out. Thanks so much again for being here. 3 p.m. next Thursday here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Yes. <laughs> Take care, America. <laughs>
Forever. 